Mark 6, starting from verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it is already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining on the oars because, of the, wind, because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about, about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gen sorry, I practiced this word, Genesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to where, wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let's um, pray as we uh, come to consider God's word. Father, we do thank you for your word now, and we pray that uh, through your spirit that you would uh, enlighten the darkness of our minds and that uh, you would uh, change our stubborn hearts, that uh, we would know more of Jesus 
more of who he is, of what his purpose uh, is for our lives, that we would grow in our affection and our trust and our obedience towards him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, leadership is about trust. Do you think that's a uh, mantra that we're going to hear a bit of between now and uh, September the 14th? I think we will. Don't uh, that uh, leadership? It's all about who you can trust. And of course, it's that's true, isn't it? Uh, the uh, reality is that we crave for leaders who we can trust. Leaders who we can trust will put. Uh, our best interests ahead of their own best interests. And of course, the Bible has a lot to say about leadership. In fact, one of the, uh, the Bible is quite picturesque, I think, with respect to um, how it describes uh, leadership. And one of the uh, endearing images in the scriptures of leaders is that of the shepherd. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, and it's a good image. Uh, the uh, shepherds were a very commonplace, a part of life uh, in a biblical term, in biblical times. And the role of a shepherd uh, was primarily twofold. Uh, the role of the shepherd was firstly to feed the sheep, uh, to lead the sheep into, uh, into green pastures. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing which a shepherd would do would be to protect the sheep. Uh, from uh, savage beasts, from wolves and from lions. And so it was actually difficult and dangerous work and the good shepherd would be the shepherd who would be prepared to risk his own life for the sake of the sheep. And that's a good image of leadership, isn't it? It's about uh, the good leader being the one who sacrifices him or herself uh, for the sake of others for the well-being of others. And it's that kind of leader who you can actually trust. That's a trustworthy leader. But so often leadership is not like that, is it? Uh, so often leaders kind of take that view of leadership and spin it around on its head. And so that uh, rather than uh, leaders serving others, leadership is seen as some whereby the leaders are served by the others and it becomes a self-serving uh, activity. And that was certainly the case at the time of Jesus. When you look at the leadership in Israel in the first century, you had the religious leaders who were, were very, very happy with the position of status that their position brought uh, them in their community and uh, they reveled in that, they... Uh, they traded on it. And then there were the political leaders, uh, the political leaders who, who lived the high life, uh, often at the expense of the people. And I think you, you would have seen that last week. If you were here in church last week, I wasn't, I was sick, but if you were here in church last week, when Peter took us, uh, showed us the first part of uh, Mark chapter 6, uh, we were introduced to, uh, to Herod. And remember, Herod uh, was the son of King Herod, who was the Herod who uh, killed all the little babies at the birth of Jesus. This is his son. 
and he's the ruler of Galilee. And we got a little bit of a window into the uh, royal palace last week and what we saw was that Herod had, or what you would have seen, is that Herod had thrown a party for himself. It was a birthday party and uh, it was a sumptuous feast for all of the high and the mighty with his uh, dancing daughter as uh, uh, stepdaughter as entertainment and with the head of John the Baptist served on one of the food plates. That was what we saw last week. And that's a picture of leadership in Israel in the first century. And so it's no surprise that in today's passage, in chapter 6, verse 34, if you want to open that up in chapter 6, as Jesus gazes out on a, on a great crowd of people, that he had compassion for them, for they were like sheep, but without a shepherd. Not nourished, not protected by the leaders of Israel. And that is in stark contrast to the true leadership of Jesus. So let's get into the passage, shall we, if you've got that passage open. Uh, in verse 30, we're going to start at verse 30. And uh, what we see there at verse 30 is that the, apostle, the, 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 the 12 were now debriefing with Jesus um, because they had just returned from a mission. That was what you, you looked at last week, that Jesus had sent the twelve out into the towns and the villages of Galilee in order to preach repentance, to heal the sick and to drive out demons. And now they had returned from this mission. Now check out in verse 30, what are the twelve called in verse 30? What term is used to describe them. They are called apostles. Now here's an interesting point. That verse is the only verse in Mark's gospel where the twelve are called apostles. And it makes sense in the context because what does the word apostle mean? Uh, the word apostle simply means someone who's been sent, a sent out person, uh, like a missionary. And it makes sense in this context because Jesus has sent the twelve out into the towns and villages of Galilee to proclaim and to announce the kingdom. And because they had been doing this work, what it meant is that they had been reaching people, they had been connecting with people, they had been interacting with people, and now the twelve had a higher profile. They were now known and identifiable to many, many people. And what that meant was when they returned to Jesus and debriefing what's gone on, what they've taught and what they've done, what's happening is that people are now coming to see them. And we see that in the passage in, uh, you know, in verse 30 and 31, that there's so many people now that are coming and going to be ministered to by the twelve that in verse uh, 31 we see that they, they actually had no time to eat. And Jesus says to them in verse 31, Look, why don't we uh, uh, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place um, and get some rest? 
Now, that's very important actually in the passage because the word for a quiet place is the same word that's uh, translated as desert or wilderness. And the theme of wilderness is very, very important in the Bible. Uh, One of the... uh, where we see that most prominently in the Bible is in the Exodus, where God took his people out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness, and it was in the wilderness that God made Israel his own, where God called them to be his people, where God said that you are my adopted child. It was in the wilderness where God cared for and protected and nurtured Uh, his child, the nation of Israel. And here, um, the disciples are being called by Jesus into the wilderness. But there they would find no peace and quiet because they were now recognisable figures. And when people saw the twelve leaving, people went after them. Now, I think it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around the size of this crowd of people. Um, In verse 44, we're told that there were 5,000. 5,000 what, by the way, does it say in verse 44? There were 5,000 men. 5,000 men. So that's not actually including the women and the children. And Matthew, in his account of this, makes it very specific that that did not include all the women and the children who were there as well. So there's every reason to believe that this could have been a much bigger crowd, a crowd perhaps of fifteen to 20,000 people. That's huge, isn't it? That's, it's hard to wrap your mind... That's half the population of Port Macquarie. And, uh, they've, they, and, and they, they are following. But who, who is it that they are following? In verse 33... It's not just Jesus that they're following, is it? Have a look at verse 33. It says, But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And so they're actually following the disciples because they are now recognisable figures. In fact, you know, we could speculate and say that perhaps even Jesus, when he sent the disciples out into all of the towns and the villages of Galilee, knew that that would make them more recognisable and that the end result would be that you would end up having this massive crowd of people withdrawing a vast multitude going into the wilderness, like a new exodus. And there in the wilderness... Jesus would be their true shepherd. For in verse 34, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus, we're told, had compassion for them. And what that means is that he, he really, it's not just intellectual, you know, I love these people, I've got to, you know, he felt it. And the word in the, in, the, in the original is very, it's a very dramatic word. It actually means he felt it in his guts. He felt this compassion, this love for these people. And so what did he do? Well, he began teaching them many things. He taught them the word of God. See, that's what a spiritual shepherd does. Um, The word pastor 
is a is an old Latin word, and in Latin it simply means, can you guess, shepherd. And, and I think that um, to some extent we've kind of changed the meaning of the word pastor, and so that people, when you think about you know a, a pastor, you think about someone who's like a counsellor, or you know someone who's a, got a real real good listening ear, who who cares, and certainly that's part of caring for people, but. In biblical terms, uh, the, the, the role of the pastor uh, is to feed God's people with God's word. And the role of the pastor is to protect God's people from those wolves that are in sheep's clothing, to identify and to refute false teaching error that will take people away from being truly nourished in their relationship with God. And that is, that is what the good pastor does. That is what the good shepherd does. And bad leadership is the opposite to that. Bad leadership starves people, God's people, of God's word. Bad leadership uh, lets the, opens the gate and lets the wolves in and doesn't care too much about that. And that was the bad leadership, the bad shepherding that was going on in the first century in Israel, but it was not new to the first century. Indeed, throughout the history of, of Israel, um, the shepherds of Israel have been falling asleep on the job. Now, I want to take you back to, a, to a, an important passage in the Old Testament, if you don't mind. Um, perhaps you could uh, keep a... Uh, your bulletins as a bookmark in Mark 6. But um, I'd like us to go back to Ezekiel for a moment, um, to Ezekiel chapter 34, and uh, you will find that uh, in your Red Pew Bibles on page 612. And Ezekiel uh, is written during the time of the Babylonian exile. Uh, Ezekiel is actually living in exile, uh, in Babylon, but um, I just want to read a few verses for you. Uh, have a look at verses 1 to 4 uh, when you've got that. In Ezekiel 34, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the, Lord, the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Uh, you eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And it goes on. Uh, as uh, God, through Ezekiel, uh, condemns the shepherds of Israel, um, speaks against them, denounces them as being false shepherds. But there is hope, and it's this hope that I want to really draw your attention to. Uh, we see it in verse 20. Uh, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them, See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you shove with flank and shoulder, uh, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you've driven them away. 
I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, of course, we know that David is long since dead when Ezekiel writes. But uh, when the Old Testament refers to David, post-David, it's referring to the lineage of David, the kingly um, hereditary uh, uh, dynasty of David. Uh, Because God had promised in 2 Samuel 7 that uh, a descendant of David would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And it is here in the wilderness, in Mark chapter 6, that we we see the fulfilment of the great promise of Ezekiel 34 that um, God would place his servant David as their shepherd. And it's in the person of Jesus. And so if you go back to Mark chapter 6, we see here that in the wilderness of Galilee that the prophecy is fulfilled, that the royal descendant of David is now feeding God's sheep by nourishing them with God's word, and he's doing so in the wilderness, where, by the way, there were no takeaway shops. And that became an issue here in the passage because... Uh, in verses 35 to 36, you know, this massive crowd of people listening to Jesus, uh, feeding them God's word, and uh, they're starting to feel like they, they need a bit of food for the, for the tummy as well. And so the, uh, the, the disciples say to Jesus, they say, Jesus, time's up. <laughs> How about kind of winding this, this up so that all these people, it's getting pretty late, they're getting pretty hungry, you know, how about winding it up so that they can all just sort of head out to all of the uh, you know, surrounding little villages and the farms. Uh, that's what it means by countryside there in the text. Uh, it's farms and villages and get themselves some takeaway. Now, when you think about that, it's a, it's a, uh, that's a solution that's a bit hard to imagine. <laughs> can you imagine 20,000 people now descending upon the tiny little villages after food. Even harder to imagine is the, is the solution that Jesus proposes. What does Jesus say to the disciples? How does he answer there? He says to them, go. He said, feed them yourselves. Feed them yourselves. Now, with five loaves of bread and two fish, Jesus then looks up to heaven and gives thanks for the food. And you can imagine the disciples thinking to themselves, hang on a moment, 20,000 mouths to, to feed here, you know, five loaves of bread, two fish, and he's giving thanks to God for that? <laughs> you know, it can be pretty small portions when you, you know, spread that all around amongst 20,000 people. I wonder this. Uh, do you give thanks to God before you eat at home? Is that your practice? It's a godly practice, isn't it? 
Actually, the Jews did more than what we do. Um, they used to give thanks to God before the meal and they would give thanks to God at the end of the meal as well. Um, that was a practice that I was in for about three years when I was living at Moore College because uh, we used to always have lunch together as a college community and you would never start the meal before, until the principal would stand up and he would uh, uh, give thanks to God for the meal and uh, you would never leave the table until the principal stood up at the end and gave thanks to God for the food that we had just eaten. That was a good uh, practice. The Jews did that all the time. They would give thanks before and after the meal. And here, uh, Jesus uh, looks up towards heaven and give, gives thanks. And he would have used the traditional Jewish grace, which was this. He would have said these words. Praise you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread come forth from the earth. And with that, we're not told exactly what happened. We're not given the details of the miracle. We don't know whether the bread and the fish just multiplied in the hands of Jesus or if the bread and the fish multiplied in the hands of the disciples as they distributed we don't know how the miracle happened. It's not described for us. What we do know and what is truly important is what we read in verse 42 and that is that every single person in that crowd was full. <laughs> no one was hungry. In fact, there were leftovers. Um, Jewish custom was that uh, people would... Uh, as part of their daily attire, would carry around a little uh, wicker basket, um, just carry it around with them all of the time. And in that basket, they would, you know, keep their lunch or little odds and ends that they would, you know, uh, that they would need to carry. And we're told here that uh, the disciples, after everyone's had their feed, goes around picking up leftovers, and they come back with twelve baskets full. I'm thinking that that's. There's probably much more leftovers than that, but that was just the 12 baskets that the disciples had that they would have carried around with them all of the time. What are we to make of this miracle? Uh, it's interesting when you, when you read the liberal theologians on it because liberals don't believe in miracles. They believe that it's all just sort of metaphors for other things and... You know, uh, liberal theologians say, well, this is just a metaphor to teach us that we should be generous with our food, you know, share it around. We've got to dig, dig a lot deeper than that. Um, and you, you don't have to dig too deeply into the Old Testament, though, to uh, see that there are other times uh, in biblical history when God caused food to simply multiply. Um, particularly at the time of Elijah and Elisha. Remember the widow of Zarephath? You know that her food supply just kept on replenishing itself. We're not told how, but we, know, we just know who did that. Um, but the greatest example, though, of um, God miraculously feeding bread to a multitude in the wilderness is, of course, at the Exodus or after the Exodus. When God fed the bread, that is, it's called the manna, uh, to Israel, where they would wake up in the morning and there it would be, lying for them, waiting for them 
on the ground every morning. And when you consider that, that the Old Testament expression of what's going on here is the feeding of of Israel in the wilderness with the manna, and then you look at what's happening here, this great multitude in the wilderness with bread, it starts to make you, you, you try to draw the connections there and you wonder, well, what is this actually telling us about who Jesus is? Now hold that thought because there's another miracle that happens. It's a stunning miracle that takes place in verses 45 through to 52 where Jesus walked on water. Let's pick it up at verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came... The boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them about the fourth watch, which is about three o'clock in the morning of the night. He went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now, again, uh, liberal theologians try to explain this away. The miracle didn't happen, didn't really walk on water. They say that he was just walking across a a sandbar. Now, you're talking about... Some of these blokes were fishermen. They knew a sandbar when they saw a sandbar. And what they saw here was not a sandbar. What they saw here was a man walking on top of water. Sometimes this miracle is really, I think... um, uh, you know, reduced in our respect for it when people want to, you know, refer to some politician who thinks pretty highly of themselves and they say, oh, you know, he can walk on water. Um, well, you know, what did, the, what, what did the disciples make of what was going on here? Uh, well, in verse 49, uh, they thought he was a ghost. Uh, in verse 50, they were terrified. In verse 51, they were completely amazed. Now, why did they react like that? I mean, they've just witnessed uh, this massive crowd of people being fed to to they were full with five loaves of bread and two fish. Why are they so stunned to see Jesus walking on water? Well, Mark tells us in verse 52 that their hearts were hardened. In a sense, the disciples were not a whole lot different to lots of other people. They just had closer contact with Jesus. Their hearts were hardened because, as Mark says, they had not understood the loaves. And that's the key. They had not understood the loaves. They, They didn't get the whole thing about bread in the wilderness. And think about this. In the Old Testament, who is it who is the Lord of the sea? Well, in uh, Exodus chapter 14, it is God who parts the sea. In Job chapter 9, actually said it's God who walks on water. Uh, In Isaiah 43, it's God who rescues his people through the water. And so here you've got Jesus controlling water, walking on water. And it's a miracle which is just 
loaded with clues about who Jesus actually is. One of the clues about who Jesus is is one which we can easily miss in our English Bibles and that is when Jesus identifies himself to them in verse 50. When he identifies himself, he says to them, take courage, it is I. Do you see that in the text? Well, in the original, that reads, take courage, I, I am. Which, of course, you can translate it as, it is I. But I, I am. Jesus is using the same words that God at the burning bush used when he spoke to Moses. And Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? And, and God says, tell them I am has sent you. This is loaded with information about the identity of Jesus. The disciples had missed the point about the bread in the wilderness. Because, friends, when large quantities of bread miraculously appear in the desert to feed God's people, then guess what? Uh, you've got a new exodus on your hands. A people of God are being formed and God is there. Here's something else. Um, this was a banquet of plain but nutritious food for God's provided for God's people by Jesus, the good shepherd. It's a banquet. And it's a banquet which stands in stark contrast to the sumptuous banquet provided for the elite by Herod, who was the bad shepherd. But there's more to it than this. Because the bread in the desert doesn't simply identify to us who Jesus is, that he is God. The bread in the desert is also a symbol of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do for you and me. In John chapter 6, uh, John recounts these events, but he also recounts a conversation that Jesus had with the disciples about the bread in the wilderness. And uh, what Jesus says to the disciples in John 6, he says that the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the disciples said to him, Sir, from now on give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Some even say that in the Lord's Prayer, that when Jesus says, give us today the bread of tomorrow, it's a reference to himself as the bread of life. How is it that Jesus can be, Jesus himself is the bread of life which we must eat if we're never to be hungry? How is that the case? Well, it's also because he is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep in John chapter 10. As Jesus has done by dying on the cross 
to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus is the bread of life. And his promise to you is that if you trust that he is God who died in your place, then you will never be hungry again. And he's not talking about food in your tummy. He is the one who provides that. Be assured of that. But he's talking about our, our need to be filled uh, with those things which matter eternally, with those things which bring um, spiritual satisfaction, spiritual fulfilment. He's talking about those things which flow from the gospel and which matter forever. Things like forgiveness, being forgiven by a holy God for every sin you have ever, ever committed, no matter how big, no matter how small. Things like peace, the peace which flows from forgiveness, peace between you and your creator, so that no longer living in enmity with God, you are living in complete and perfect fellowship and unity with God, your creator. He's talking about living in order to glorify and enjoy your creator forever. The very purpose for which you have been made. There can be nothing more rewarding, nothing more satisfying, nothing more fulfilling than to be able to do that. He's talking about life, eternal life in heaven instead of eternal punishment in hell for the sins that have otherwise been not paid for. So are you still hungry? Are you still searching for that peace which seems elusive? then feed on Christ in your hearts by faith, with thanksgiving, by trusting that he is the bread of life, the one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul, by trusting that he is the good shepherd, the one who is able to satisfy your longings because he did lay down his life for the sheep and he did it for you. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in the wilderness that he called out your people. We thank you that he fed them. And we thank you, Father God, that uh, he indeed is the embodiment of the bread of, that has come down from heaven, that it points to him and who he is and what he's done. We pray, Father God, that we would be people who recognise his true leadership, recognise that his sacrificial leadership, which led to the cross, was done for us. And we pray, Father God, that by trusting in him, that we would feed on him, that we would find that joy and that satisfaction uh, that can only come from him who is indeed the bread of life. And we pray this in his name. Amen.